Father, you love marriage. We know that because you love your son and you've been working throughout all of time to make a beautiful bride for your son. And you love this picture of that relationship that you made in the relationship between a man and a woman in marriage. Lord, you know that each one of us here in this room today comes to a conversation on marriage from very different places. Some of us with eager hearts, some of us with broken hearts, some of us with lonely hearts, some of us with tired hearts. And Lord, we believe that your word has something to say to each one of us. So Lord, may it this morning May your word say, may we hear, Lord, what your word is saying in exactly the way that we need to. And I pray that as we see what your word is saying, Lord, that we would see you in your glory and that we'd be transformed into that same image from one degree to another. May today, Lord, be another degree of glory that you shape us into by your powerful and majestic and holy and true word. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can have a seat. We are in our second last week in the book of Proverbs, and we've been going through key topic by key topic looking at what Proverbs has to say about some of the most important things in life. Today's our second last stop. We have one more week, and we are looking at what Proverbs has to say about marrying well. The title for this message is More Precious Than Jewels, Marriage and Marrying Well in Proverbs. We've seen many times how the book of Proverbs is written from the perspective of a father to a son, seeking to equip him for life. Today, we're looking at the wisdom that was given from the father to the son, from the sage to the disciple on marrying well. This is what the son needed to know to make wise decisions regarding marriage. And as I touched on in in, in my prayer here a few moments ago, I know that each one of us comes to this discussion from a different place. There are many different relationship statuses in this room. There are many different sets of hopes and expectations Uh, memories, and so on when it comes to marriage. Those of you here who are in the I really want to get married category are probably closest to the original audience for for whom these Proverbs were written for. And yet, I I think we're going to see this morning that each one of us has something to learn. Each one of us has something that we can take and and apply and learn and grow from from these, these Proverbs. So we're going to follow along. The outline is there on your handout. And we're, we have uh, a fair bit of, of really good material here that we want, to, we want to make it through this morning. So let's begin by considering one of the first big truths that Proverbs teaches us, which has to do with the goodness of marriage. Marriage is invented by God. We saw that in our series in Genesis a, a year and a half ago or so. Marriage is God's idea. And it is therefore good. It is part of the created order. And marriage was there before the fall. Marriage is an important part of the plan of redemption because marriage played an important part in God's covenant with Abraham, right? God promised 
to give Abraham many descendants and that one of his descendants would be the would would be the promised one who would bring blessing to the world. Therefore, in that covenant that God made with Abraham, which was later uh, was was uh, furthered through the covenant that God made with Israel, marriage was a really big deal because God's people was were an ethnic people group, and the way they grew was by having babies. Therefore, marriage was virtually necessary to participate in what God was doing. And so marriage was was a really big deal. But beyond even that, Proverbs tells us just that, that marriage is a good thing. It's a good thing. And it tells us this in two ways. And the first is a reflection in chapter 30 on the wonder of intimacy. Three things, this is Proverbs 30, 18 to 19. Three things are too wonderful to me, four I do not understand. The way of an eagle in the sky the way of a serpent on the rock, the way of a ship on the high seas, and the way of a man with a virgin. I recently was on a hike along the shore of Cadet Lake, and I got to watch an eagle flying around in the sky. And it's a wonderful thing to watch an eagle, to see how it moves, how it gets from point A to point B, riding on the currents, wheeling through the sky. It's hard to describe exactly what it's doing, how it's moving, but it is. You can see it, and it's wonderful. Isn't it also something to watch a snake move across a rock? I mean, how does it do that? If we didn't have arms and legs, we wouldn't be able to move quite so speedily or gracefully. How does it decide just to go in a direction and just get there? It does. It's wonderful. Hard to describe. Isn't it also something to watch a ship out on the high seas? something we don't get to see from our front doors in Nipawin, but thanks to photos and movies, we've gotten glimpses of it, and we've all seen boats out on the lake or the river. And I mean, at first it seems impossible that this little bit of wood and sail would be able to navigate such depths and such distances, but it does. And even though it gets blown around and carried up and down and moved around, it somehow gets where it's supposed to go. And you know what else is wonderful? The way of a man with a virgin. That's what our passage tells us this morning. The way that a man pursues and wins the love of a woman such that she pledges her life to him and then welcomes him to come and know her in the most intimate way possible. I'm trying to be delicate and appropriate this morning, but the, 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 the language, the Hebrew wording here in this verse is pointing us all the way all the way there. It is pointing us in a very sensitive way to the place of deepest intimacy between a new husband and a new wife. And that's it's not embarrassing. It's not dirty. The point of this passage is that it's wonderful. It's wonderful. It's a part of the created order. It's wonderful. And we see this elsewhere in the Old Testament. We see this elsewhere in Proverbs. Think of chapter 5 with some verses that we did not read publicly because of their graphic but true celebration of marriage, marital intimacy. Think of the Song of Solomon. Think even of Psalm 19.5, which we read with our kids this past week, which celebrates the son which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber. The Hebrews were very uh, not embarrassed about this stuff. Would you say that? The sunrise, oh, look at it shining. It's like shining like a, 
like a, like, a, like a bridegroom coming out of his wedding chamber. People go, we don't talk about that stuff. Well, the Bible does. And it's, it's good. It's not bad. It's not dirty. It's nothing to snicker about. God invented marital intimacy. Ah, I'm jumping ahead of myself here. Uh, here's the problem. When we get all embarrassed about this stuff and we don't talk about it ever, we let the world fill in all the blanks. And especially with our kids, we leave our kids with the idea that true pleasure is found in disobeying God. And that's not true. God invented marital intimacy. It's wonderful. It's good. And several modern studies actually tell us that when people obey God's directions, they actually enjoy this side of the relationship far more than those who don't. So this is, this is our first stop in Proverbs. Maybe it's a surprising one to you. It's a celebration of marriage at its most intimate. And according to Proverbs, it's a good and it's a wonderful thing. Connected to this, the next truth we see in Proverbs is that a godly wife is a gift from God. This is something that the father wanted his son to understand. And this is even more interesting since we know that in ancient Israel, many times parents were involved in arranging marriages for their children. Not all the time. Sometimes it was just in the role of an advisor. But parents often played a role in this. And yet it's so interesting that Proverbs 18.22 says, He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. Now, remember in that covenant, getting married and having kids was the way that you grew the people of God and, and even perhaps participated in the arrival of the Messiah. A wife, therefore, was a gift. But not just any wife. 1914 says, House and wealth are inherited from fathers, but a prudent wife is from the Lord. Here's what the son should want. Not just any wife, but a prudent wife, a woman who's moral and thoughtful. And the father says to his son, I can't give you that kind of wife. It's an astounding statement, knowing that, again, the fathers in ancient Israel had, had quite a role in selecting spouses for their children. He says, I can, give you, I can give you money, I can give you land when I die, but the kind of woman that you want, son, it's gonna, she's going to be a gift from the Lord. And the father wants his son to seek this kind of wife from the Lord. That's why he tells him in 12.4, an excellent wife is the crown of her husband. Think of what a crown does to someone. It brings them glory and honor and attention and it draws, draws attention to them and to their position. And just like a crown brings glory to the head of a king, so an excellent wife adorns and empowers and brings honor to her husband. I think that there are many people who like me or tolerate me because of the woman that I'm married to. And I say that not really joking. Uh, and and, and uh, I, I know what this verse feels like to have a crown. Now, here's what's important to realize is this is not describing a trophy wife who merely looks good. This has nothing to do with, with out, outward appearance. And we're going to hear that pretty clearly over the, or in some other verses this morning. But this has the, 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 the way in which a wife serves as her husband's crown has everything to do with her work ethic her strength, and her wisdom. 
And that's going to show up really, really clearly. So when you hear crown, don't think trophy looks good and draws eyes. That's, that's not what it's talking about at all. But nevertheless, this, this excellent wife who excels in these ways will be like a crown on her husband's head. And, and Solomon wants his son to have this kind of a wife. Because there's an incredible danger in marrying someone who is not prudent or excellent. See, we only read the first half of 12, verse 4. We read that an excellent wife is the crown of her husband. But look at how the verse actually finishes up. But she who brings shame is like rottenness in his bones. When a man is married to a woman who brings him shame by being unfaithful or ungodly or foolish, he might as well have bone cancer. That's what the force of this verse is saying. She who brings shame is like rottenness in his bones. An ungodly wife can tear a man apart from the inside out. And the father does not want his son to be married to someone like this. So he gives him advice. And that's our second major section here in Proverbs is how to marry well. What kind of woman should his son avoid? And what kind of woman should his son seek? Let's start with the first point. What kind of woman should his son avoid as he seeks to marry well? The first answer is that he should avoid a woman who is merely beautiful. And by merely, I mean someone who is beautiful on the outside, but who is foolish in her heart. Proverbs 11.22, like a gold ring in a pig's snout is a beautiful woman without discretion. One of those great proverbs, you know, it's one of those statements that we would never say if it wasn't actually found in God's word because it's perhaps offensive, but it's offensive in a really important way because it's telling us truth. What good is a gold ring in a pig's snout? It's no good. It's meaningless. It's just going to get coated with whatever the pig is eating. It's out of place. It doesn't belong. Right? A gold ring was meant to draw attention to something that was worth drawing attention to, but in a pig snout, that means that, that that's meaningless. Similarly, it's telling us physical beauty is out of place on a woman with no morals or good judgment. That's that idea of discretion there, morals, good judgment. We're going to see in Proverbs 31, charm is deceitful and beauty is vain. Outer beauty is supposed to be a reflection of inner beauty. Outer beauty is not bad. It's not bad. But it was designed to be a reflection of inner beauty. Think of a vehicle that on the outside is polished and shiny and has a new paint job, but the engine is completely seized up and it can't actually drive anywhere. Right? That, that, that just doesn't make sense. It's not the way it's supposed to be. Outer beauty is supposed to reflect inner beauty, but it doesn't always. Outer beauty can be deceptive. Many a pretty face 
and this is true for both men and women, many a good-looking face conceals an ugly heart. That's why the Bible repeatedly tells us to prioritize the development of inner beauty. Think of 1 Peter 3, 3 3-4, which explicitly says to cultivate real beauty, which is the unseen virtues of the heart. And that's why the father warns his son here against marrying a woman who is merely outwardly beautiful and nothing else. There's a second major thing that the son is warned against, and that is marrying a woman who is argumentative. 21 verse 9 says, It is better to live in a corner of the housetop than in a house shared with a quarrelsome wife. And that idea is so important, it is repeated word for word in 25-24. Word for word. Middle Eastern rooftops were flat. Right? They didn't get tons of rain. They didn't have peaked roofs. So you think, okay, that's, we're a little, little bit better. But, but they were flat roofs, exposed to the elements, hot in the day, cold at night. Some of them had a little uh, guest room in the corner, but they weren't meant for long-term stays. They were uncomfortable and cramped at best, exposed at worst, And yet these verses say that it would be better to live up there, exposed and uncomfortable and perhaps even in danger of falling off, than it would be to live in a house with a wife who is quarrelsome or argumentative or contentious, as the NASB says, or nagging, as the CSB translation says. 21.19 makes this point even more dramatically. It is better to live in a desert land than with a quarrelsome and fretful woman. Deserts are terrible places to live, especially there in the Middle East. There's no shelter, there's no food, there's no water. And Proverbs says that's actually better than to live with a wife who is constantly argumentative or fretful, which in this context speaks of angering and irritation. There's two more Proverbs that single out this particular struggle that this kind of wife will be for her husband. 19.13, a foolish son is ruined to his father and a wife's quarreling is a continual dripping of rain. And then 27.15-16, a continual dripping on a rainy day and a quarrelsome wife are alike. To restrain her is to restrain the wind or to grasp oil in one's right hand. So when Proverbs repeats an idea like that so many times, we got to think about it. We got to think about it. And so we're, we're going to do that. We're going to think about these last few verses that I just read in two ways. One, we're going to think really broadly, and two, we're going to think more, more narrowly. Broadly, I hope you see that these verses are saying something very important. Okay, so... If you're here this morning and you're in the I really want to get married category, please listen. These verses are saying that being married is not always better than not being married. Do you hear that? Wouldn't you rather be a single guy living in a nice house than a guy who is technically married but has to live by himself out in the desert? Right? What, what good is it to be married in that case? This is, this is really important. What these Proverbs are helping us to see is that being married is not always better than not being married, depending on who you're married to. 
And this is important because many young people have the idea that it's worth it to get married at whatever the cost. I was a university, uh, not professor, uh, pastor in Regina for a lot of years. And I've lost count of how many young people I've seen throw away their plans, their ambitions, their convictions, their values, and often even their faith just to get married to the first person with a pulse who showed them interest. And I'm barely exaggerating because their number one goal in life is get married and everything else you can sacrifice for that goal. And I've seen many of those people end up sad and lonely, bearing heavy burdens that they will carry for the rest of their life. Now, I want to be really careful here this morning. See, if I was talking just to, just to people who weren't married, we could, I could say some things. Now, I realize we're in a, we're in a, in a very different, there's many different stories in this room here. And I want to just make sure that those of you who are married and who might be going through a, maybe a, a tough spot in your marriage right now, I don't want to pour despair onto you. And whatever, if you are married, whatever spot you're in, God can meet you there. And his grace is enough. And there is so much grace available to you. So, so don't hear me saying, ah, well, you blew it and you're, you're, you might as well just pack it in and go move out to the desert. That's not what I'm saying. But we do have to wave the flag around to people who want to get married. That marriage at any cost is not a good plan because that cost may end up being a lot more than you bargained for. I read a quote this week from someone. This, it was an article specifically talking about marrying someone who, who didn't share your faith. And they said, if you think you're lonely now, you have no idea how lonely it can be to be married to someone who doesn't share your faith. And that's just one example of how marriage is not always worth it. So that's the, kind of the broad sense of these verses. Better to live in the desert, right? So we got to think this through. Now let's be more narrow. We're going to be rebels here, and we're going to talk about some stuff that is culturally inappropriate. Uh, And we, we are going to pay attention to the ways in which these Proverbs criticize and warn about a particular vice that it is identifying with certain wives, which is being argumentative. It's interesting how um, many of us don't have a problem with calling out sins that tend to be common to men. But often when we go to talk about sins that can be common to women, we don't talk about it. So this might feel a little awkward for you, but we're following God's word and we're going to see where it leads us. Why do you think Proverbs warns about this issue so repeatedly? The issue of being married to an argumentative woman. Well, let's be honest here. And let's, let's, let's just take in the full picture. God has called and designed husbands to carry the load of sacrificial leadership in their marriages. That's God's plan. And God has clearly and repeatedly called wives to submit to their husband's leadership. That's God's plan. And as anyone who has been married for more than an hour knows, that arrangement is not always easy. Submitting is often a struggle. This is a struggle that was foreseen 
in Genesis 3.16, where God told Eve, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. So what happens when a woman's desire is contrary to her husband? Her desire is running in a different direction than his or than him, and yet he is still in leadership. What happens? And one answer is that instead of cheerfully submitting, she can argue and complain and backbite. Many of us know exactly what I'm talking about. We've seen it if we haven't experienced it. It's a sin pattern that's as old as human history. And that's what these Proverbs are pointing to. And is it not true that Christian marriages can often experience or display this sin pattern? Isn't it true that even for many Christians, it is socially acceptable for a wife to complain about her husband and talk down about him to her friends when the same is not true for a husband to talk about his wife? Sometimes we normalize these dynamics with jokes, like, my husband is the head, but I'm the neck that turns the head. In other words, we pretend to follow God's instructions, but really we don't, because the wife leads through manipulation. Or, happy wife, happy life. Which is often taken to mean... It's okay for a wife to make her husband miserable if he doesn't do what she wants him to do. She's got permission, cultural permission. Or what about if mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy? Which suggests that it's just okay for a woman to inflict her negative emotions on the rest of her household. And it's normal for a family to feel like they must do whatever it takes to keep mom happy. This is not how the people of God should think. If mama ain't happy, maybe she needs to go before the Lord and seek the grace to show the fruit of the Spirit to her family. Because I'm pretty sure that the Holy Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead doesn't take a break when we experience mood fluctuations. In our men's Bible study last year, we talked about the fact that many Christian men say they believe in biblical gender roles, But when you ask them, when is the last time that you led your wife and she submitted to you, you get a long, awkward pause. Isn't that interesting? That every time in the New Testament, when it addresses how biblical marriages should work, it talks about leadership and submission. Now, marriage is more than that, but it's not less than that. Every time it's there. And when you ask many Christian men, when's the last time this happened? Today we're looking at the other side of the coin. How common is it for a wife to say that she wants her husband to lead, but when he leads in a way that she doesn't like, she criticizes or complains or corrects or just gets sullen and withdrawn and can make him regret ever trying to take leadership in the first place? If we were honest, I think we'd recognize, and just so you know, I ran all this by my wife first. I read this all to her, just to be like, okay, Make, help me make sure we're, 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 we're good here. But if we were honest, I think we'd recognize that this is a temptation known by many wives in many marriages. 
And we should take it seriously. This is why we're spending time talking about it this morning, because the book of Proverbs talks about it again and again and again and again. We need to pay attention to this. And we should see that the book of Proverbs warns a young man against marrying a woman who does not fight against this temptation. So my, my understanding here is that based on what we read in Genesis 3, this temptation is going to be known by almost every woman. But a godly woman is going to fight against this temptation. An ungodly woman is going to give in to this temptation and will become characterized by contentiousness. And Proverbs warns the son against marrying that kind of woman. Now, lest anyone think that we're picking on women this morning, have you noticed how many times the book of Proverbs talks about men's sins? The book of Proverbs has no problem pointing out sins common to men. And that's why on your handout, I've got Proverbs 27, 8, which talks about the bird-brained man, in fact, worse than a bird brain, who wanders from his home and doesn't go home at the end of the day, goes to some other place, like a bird that wanders from its nest. And yet, you notice what I put beside that? I say, see also Proverbs 1, 1 to 31, 31, which is the entire book of Proverbs. Unmarried ladies... The whole book of Proverbs is full of warnings and descriptions about the kind of man that you don't want to marry. When we've been hearing about it all throughout this whole series, a man who is violent, a man who is lazy, a man who thinks he knows everything, a man who can't take a rebuke, a man who doesn't listen to others, a man who is rash, a man who can't control his words or his temper or his appetites, and on and on and on. So... There's a few verses here this morning that we've looked at, but in many ways, ladies, the whole book of Proverbs has been giving lots of material for all of us to recognize what kind of person we definitely would not choose to spend the rest of our life with. So we've been looking at the the negative side of the equation. What about the positive side of the equation? We know what the young man should avoid, But what should he seek? And the clearest answer to that comes in one of the most well-known and least understood passages in the book of Proverbs, which is Proverbs 31, 10 to 31, which we read together just a few moments ago. Let's make a few comments about this passage. We can't tell in English, but in Hebrew, Proverbs 31, 10 to 31 is an acrostic poem, which means that each line starts with the next letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And the sense of it, we have acrostic poems all the time in the Psalms, and the sense is that it's saying, here's something from A to Z, everything you need to know. So here's everything from A to Z that a young man needs to know about the kind of woman that he wants to marry. That's the, that's the sense here in Proverbs uh, 31. Another thing that we need to notice is that these words actually came through a woman. Look at chapter 31, verse 1, which introduces this. The words of King Lemuel, an oracle that his mom, well, mother, that his mother taught him. An oracle is a divinely inspired utterance, like a prophecy. And this prophecy, this oracle, was taught to this king by his mom. So this wasn't just a single man's wish list. Some of you young, unmarried people have been told that that's a good idea. Sit down and make a list of the kind of person that you want to marry. And typically those end up in the paper shredder, and that's where they belong. Because people are not lists. And those lists that you write in isolation as a single person are often incredibly unrealistic. 
Whereas what we see here is that this is something that came from his mom, that she so wanted him to understand about how to find an excellent wife. Now let's talk about the kinds of activities we see the excellent wife doing in these verses. Verse 13, she seeks wool and flax. Verse 16, she considers a field and buys it. With the fruit of her hand, she plants a vineyard. Verse 19, she puts her hands to the spindle. Verse 22, she makes bed coverings for herself. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. And these verses have perplexed many women throughout history who think, why can't I just buy bed coverings at Walmart? Here's what we need to understand. The activities described in these verses were simply the kinds of things that happened within busy, prosperous homes in ancient Israel. Did you get that? We we, we really need to understand this. Back in ancient Israel, before we had big machines and big factories, the home was the center of industry and production. Okay, so you get that. People didn't go to Walmart because they had no Walmart. You made stuff in your home. And then you, if you had extra, you'd take it and sell it at the market. People didn't leave home to go to work. Men didn't go to work until after the Industrial Revolution when we had big factories and big homes. The home was the center of industry and production for most of human history. So... In a, biz, in a busy, prosperous, God-blessed home in ancient Israel, all of the things we see in Proverbs 31 would have been happening. That's the kinds of things that happened. Wool and flax were used to make clothing for the household and for selling in the market. Servants worked in the fields. Vineyards were bought and sold and planted. Food was prepared. Children were raised and educated. The poor were fed. Now, all this didn't happen on the same day. Please understand this. Proverbs 31 is not a to-do list like a daily schedule. 8.30, do this. 8.32, do this. 8.34, do this. No, no, no. These are just the kinds of things over the course of the years that happened. And so what these verses are telling us is simply that this excellent woman was involved in all the affairs of her household. So it's not like the ancient ladies would have read this and said, oh man, I got to go find wool and flax. No, that's what happened. And it's just saying that she did it. And so verse 27 really sums it all up. She looks well to the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. That's kind of the summary verse. Verse 27. She's looking for the ways of her household and she's not lazy. Okay? She's eating the bread of idleness. That's what it's, what it's saying. She's not lazy. Instead of sitting around and letting other people do this stuff, she's involved in doing it herself. Now, there's more to being an excellent wife here than just hard work. Verse 20 describes her generosity to the poor. Verse 25 describes her character of strength and dignity. Verse 26 says that wisdom and kindness flow from her mouth. We see how, in many ways, the whole book of Proverbs is being summed up in this lady's life. But the main picture here is of a diligent work ethic applied as she manages her household. That's the picture here is of a household manager. In other words, we see this woman operating as her husband's helper. Remember Genesis 2, that God made Eve to be Adam's helper. And what we see here in Proverbs 31 is an Israelite woman managing the household, of which her husband was the head, and she is managing that household as her husband's helper. And that's why her husband is so central in this in this. 
uh, in this poem. Verse 11 and 12, as it opens up, the heart of her husband trusts in her. He will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not harm all the days of her life. How does she do him good? By doing all of these things. And because of her diligence, he's able to participate in community life. Look at verse 23. Her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. The gates were like the courtroom in ancient Israel. And her husband is able to go and be one of the elders there, sit in the gates, participate in ruling the land. He's able to do that because she's being so diligent with managing the household. He's married to an excellent woman. And then this poem ends, it's bookended with her husband's words. He gets the last word as he rises and praises her and says, many women have done excellently, but you surpass them all. And I think, I think every husband in this room thinks, oh, he, he didn't meet my wife or he wouldn't have, wouldn't have read that. And isn't that a good thing if you, if you know that? Uh, a, a, a husband who loves his wife feels this way about his wife. We can't miss this. The primary relationship for the Proverbs 31 woman is her relationship with her husband. Of course, she's a good mom because verse 28 says her children rise up and call her blessed. She's taking care of them. But I'm pointing out that her primary relationship here is with her husband because there's this really popular idea, even in Christian circles, that often falls under the banner of what we might call mommy culture, which is that a woman is defined and derives her identity from being a mom. And that if she's not a mom to physical kids, she's maybe not even fully a woman yet. And that in a home, the primary relationship that makes that home is between a mother and her children. And the dad just basically pays for things and tries to stay out of the way and not be too dumb. And, and this is sort of a vision of the home that some of you have certainly been exposed to. And, and that's not what we see here. We saw back in June, dads have primary responsibility for their children, biblically. And in Proverbs 31, the woman's primary relationship is not with her children, but with her husband. And so what she does as she cares for her house, she does as her husband's helper. And this is the kind of hardworking woman that a young man should seek. He should not be deceived by mere beauty, which is deceitful. He should seek a woman whose hands are used for more than taking selfies and scrolling Instagram. He should look for a woman who fears God and uses her hands to work and serve and love others. Before we go a whole lot further here, we're going to be wrapping up this morning and very quickly, very quickly touching on three key points that relate to marriage in the new covenant. We've seen marriage is good, it's a gift, and we've seen advice on marrying well. And very quickly, we are going to look in the New Covenant, and we have, to, we have to do this here because marriage in the New Covenant is different. God is not primarily growing his people through physical birth. God is growing his people through new birth and through people going to bring the gospel to people who haven't heard, like Sharman talked about this morning. So if that's true, what does that mean? Very quickly, we see in the New Covenant, number one, marriage is a shadow of the reality. The reality is Christ. Marriage never was an end unto itself. Ephesians 5, it's right there. Marriage always was about pointing to Christ in the church. We have to realize that. And in the, in the resurrection, marriage is going to pass away. That's what Jesus said, 20, 22, 30. There's no marriage in heaven. It's temporary. And it was always about pointing to Christ. It's a shadow. The reality is Christ. Number two, 
Marriage is not for everybody. Until the, the, the Christ returns, we live in this already but not yet. And if you read 1 Corinthians 7, you'll see that marriage is God's gift to some people and not being married is God's gift to other people. And that's why Paul says, I wish that all were as myself am, single, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. And there's so much more I want to say about the gift of singleness. You can search it on a church website or I've written stuff about it. Let's be clear here. The New Testament elevates singleness to the level of a divine vocation, a mission, a gift given by God to some people, not the ability to be married, sorry, not the ability to be single, but just being single because of the freedom it gives them to serve the Lord. But our final stop, number three, by elevating singleness, the New Testament does not bring marriage down. Hebrews 13.4 says, Let marriage be held in honor among all. Marriage is not everything, but it's not nothing either. Marriage is to be honored and it's to be celebrated. And so it's appropriate for unmarried Christians to desire marriage and to seek marriage and to apply the lessons that we heard in Proverbs. It's, it's, it's appropriate to do that. It's also wise for them to heed 1 Corinthians 7 and recognize that their relationship status is ultimately in God's hands. And it's wise for us to remember that as good and wonderful as marriage is, it is passing away, it is not everything, and it's not the pinnacle of life. And so here's the note I want us to end on this morning. Our church is full of Proverbs 31 women. Women who display the wisdom of Proverbs in their speech and in their actions. Women who refuse to be idle. Women who use their lives to serve and love others in the fear of God. Some of those women are married and some of them are not. Some of those women have children and some of them do not. And in our Christian culture, isn't it often true that a woman who is married but lazy is often viewed as having made it, but a woman who is single and diligent for the kingdom of God is still viewed as if she's still kind of waiting for her life to start? And that should not be how it is for the people of God. The Proverbs 31 woman was more precious than jewels because of the kind of woman that she was, that she had a heart that feared the Lord and hands that served others. Will we be a community that recognizes that such women are more precious than jewels, regardless of their relationship status? Proverbs 11.16 says that a gracious woman gets honor. Will that be true for us here? Will we be a community where older women choose to invest in younger women and train them to become Proverbs 31 type women, whether that involves a husband and a children or not? Will we be a community that understands that you don't need a husband before you can be hospitable and you don't need to get pregnant before you can pour your life out in the service of others? We're going to sing a song here at the end of surrender to the Lord, inviting him to take us and make us the the kind of person that we see in Proverbs 31 who is diligent in the service of God and others. And let's make sure that when we see people doing this, we give them the honor that is appropriate for them, regardless of relationship status. Let's pray. Oh God, help us to think about what we've heard from your word this morning and to believe it and to apply it. 
And help us, oh God, to be a church community that values what you value. I praise you for the diligent, wise women that fill up our church and for the service that they render in so many different ways, so many different areas, so many different environments. We praise you, O Lord, for how your glory is seen in these, your daughters. And may we be a community, Lord, that honors and cherishes a woman who fears the Lord. And I ask this, O God, in your name. Amen.